This is a Federal News Network podcast. Fighting increasingly dangerous wildfires falls on federal, state, and local government agencies, each with their own fire mitigation projects and data. But the Federal Chief Data Officers Council is piloting ways to use that interagency data to reduce the spread and severity of wildfires. That includes removing some trees, shrubs, and grasses before they have a chance to burn. For the latest on this data pilot, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Chief Data Officer for Wildland Fire, Rochelle Peterson. Sharing data helps with planning and coordinating those activities, facilitating joint implementation, and enables a common approach to measuring and reporting on the effectiveness of those activities. Okay, and so just to dig a little bit deeper into this pilot that we've heard, how can agencies put their data to use to make sure that they're able to reduce the impact of wildfires? I think there's this CDO Council pilot that's uh, been ongoing. Can you shed a little bit more details on that effort? Sure. So in June of 2020, the Federal CDO Council received some funding, and so they sponsored some projects that would enable and promote the use of data and and learning opportunities. And so we applied for some funding to look at our fuels management program and the data that we use to support that and see if we could find some more, I guess, inventive ways of being able to understand and share the data that supports those activities. 2020 was record-setting fire year in California, and so there was a lot of conversation about how to mitigate the risk of fire to communities and to the environment. And it was the year that Vicki Christensen, who was the chief of the Forest Service, was working with Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, to create a shared stewardship agreement. And part of that agreement was this emphasis on increasing vegetation treatments to reduce the risk of wildfires. And so what we've seen is that when you work in this multi-jurisdictional environment, each agency has their own culture, their own way of thinking about their program, about talking about it, their own terminology. Sometimes we use the same term to mean different things, or we use different terms to represent the same concept. And so what we looked at doing was seeing if we could use data to help bridge some of those inconsistencies and to facilitate sharing of planned activities and how we would measure the effectiveness of those activities. So we applied for this um, funding to the CDO Council. And I think because of the context, because of all those activities around fuels and those fires, it was a great use case. And so we were excited to get that funding and be able to start working on something that we felt had direct implications for our folks in the field, but also contributed to the federal environment and understanding how we can promote the use of data. I think one key takeaway in all of this is that there is a huge universe of agencies, both federal and state and perhaps even local as part of all this. Can you just give me a better snapshot of who ultimately is involved in this work of mitigating wildfires? Yeah, so it it is a huge universe. So we talk about five federal wildland fire management agencies. So that's USDA Forest Service. On the Department of Interior side, we have the Bureau of Land Management, the National Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. 
So those are kind of the five federal agencies that have a specific wildland fire response and management mission. But then we also work with 59 states and territories, over 3,000 local and county governmental agencies. There's 374 recognized tribal agencies, and we work with multiple other federal agencies. So the Department of Defense, U.S. Geological Survey, USGS, oh, pretty much anybody that has any sort of land activities or resources that they would contribute or have a science base that want to help us be able to detect fires or find more effective ways of responding to um, fires. So it's it's a huge collection of entities that are involved. And I think the thing that, you know, wildland fire doesn't, it doesn't care about agency boundaries. It doesn't recognize land ownership. It just moves across the landscape. And so we have to have a way to be able to coordinate our response activities and our planning activities for mitigation projects. Yeah, really a lot of moving pieces here. And to drill down into the pilot a little bit more, I understand the root of it is using this data to reduce the fuel that makes these fires uh, more aggressive and spread and get more severe. How is that fuel reduction effort critical to reducing the severity of wildfires? So when we think about fire behavior, we talk about it as a triangle. So there are three sides of the equation. One is weather, one is topography, and one is fuels. And so we really can't influence weather or topography. So the only side of the equation that we can make have any impact on is that fuel side. And so in looking at how we can reduce burnable fuels so that if a wildfire does occur, it occurs at a lower intensity, then we have a better opportunity to uh, manage that wildfire and reduce the impact, the negative impacts of fire. It seems that managing wildfires seems to be a full-time job these days. You know, we think of a wildfire season, but it seems that that season is getting longer and longer each year. So just tell me, as you understand it, when does the wildfire season actually start these days? Yeah, it starts January 1st at midnight and it ends December 31st at 11.59. You know, we really are not talking about fire seasons as much anymore as talking about fire years. And we can see, you know, we've had fires in December and January in California and Colorado. At different points in the year, there's a high likelihood that there are wildfires occurring in some region of the United States. And we tend to think because the Western United States during the summer is where we have a lot of the large fires that make the national news. There's a tendency to think that that's the fire season, but the reality is that fire is occurring throughout the United States throughout the year. To turn back to this pilot, this seems to be a really interesting way of getting additional value out of the data that's already collected by these agencies. So tell me a little bit more about the data sets that have been collected by these agencies that we're talking about? And how does this pilot get that value added as a result of all of that? Yeah, so one of the really fun things about this project is we are using a fairly new technology approach called Knowledge Graph. So a Knowledge Graph is a different way of thinking about the data. We're utilizing W3C standards. So those are international standards for data interoperability. And so we wanted to see if we could use kind of 
some people refer to as a semantic approach. So semantic is about meaning, right? How do you apply meaning? So we're looking at the data and how we can better understand the data. So one of the things that we were able to do with this project, because the foundational aspects of a knowledge graph are all about relationships. How does one thing relate to another thing? So we could work with Cal Fire and say, okay, Cal Fire, what does this concept mean to you? And then what does that concept mean to BLM? And we could draw the relationship between that. And the nice thing about that is that it means that we don't have to take everybody and force them into the same round hole. They can have their different sized pegs and we can just describe that and understand the relationships between them without making everybody use the same database or even put all of their data in the same location. That's Rochelle Peterson, the chief data officer for Wildland Fire, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you no, know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, 
I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, you know, I think my my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. (coughs) Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. 
It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.